Hello again, and welcome back to Well, Not Perfect. I had an absolute blast putting on my clinical hat with our guest today. Dr. McGrath currently serves as the Chief Clinical Officer for NoCD, an app-based platform for the treatment of OCD. He leads their teletherapy services across the world. He is also a lead psychologist at Ascension, Illinois, Alexian Brothers Behavioral Health Hospital, where he opened the intensive outpatient, partial hospital, and residential treatment programs for anxiety disorders, school refusal, and OCD. I've known Dr. McGrath for years, and it was a privilege to pick his brain on this episode. He shares with us some of the most exciting developments in the treatment of OCD and other anxiety disorders, as well as some of the most interesting cases he's dealt with in his career. There was an empowering golden thread throughout our conversations that I think is important for every listener to hear, that we as humans really are more capable of overcoming our fears than we think. I look at it now, the evolution of this as how can we get people just to recognize that you're already doing the difficult stuff, right? And how can you apply that to the things you're just not applying it to so that you'll live the life that you want to live that isn't being ruled by all the anxiety. In today's episode, you will learn the evolution of therapeutic treatments, including exposure response prevention, strategies for supporting a loved one who struggles with an anxiety disorder, and why it's crucial for us to be okay with short-term emotional discomfort in order to benefit us in the long term. Welcome to another episode of Well, Not Perfect. Well, thank you for coming on the show. We have run in some similar circles and since COVID it's been a lot harder, but it's great to see you. And I can't wait to kind of pick your brain because you're definitely the go-to guy for OCD nationally, of course, but also just in our local North suburbs where I've seen you. So I really appreciate it. I'm really curious. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into mental health, how you got into OCD and kind of the evolution of where you are now? When, when I was a teenager, call waiting became available. And my dad basically said, we're getting call waiting because of you. And if you're on the phone with someone and it beeps, you better answer it. Cause if, if it's busy with call waiting, I'm going to be pretty, pretty angry. <laughs> but the reason that happened was I had talked to a few people as a teenager and they they liked the advice that I gave them. And suddenly my phone number was being spread out to people and phone calls would come to the house. And I was like, Lucy, you know, five cents, please with the psychiatric, uh, you know, <laughs> wooden frame kind of thing uh, going on. And, and I just talked to people who said, I know someone who talked to you once and they said you helped them. And I was wondering if I could chat with you. And I was like, Oh, okay. Uh, sure. Yeah. What's going on. <laughs> and, and I was, doing like my own version of likely awful therapy <laughs> but but at the time people were connecting with me and enjoyed the conversations and were thankful and a few were even feeling suicidal and they said they were still alive because they had a chat with me and uh, I thought oh maybe this is what I do maybe this is my my thing right and so I I went to graduate school eventually and and then why do I do now what I do is because of my postdoc. I, I applied to a bunch of different jobs and, and got rejected from everything. And it was just talk about a, an amazingly deflating experience. But uh, one postdoc I applied to did say yes. And it was the St. Louis Behavioral Medicine Institute. And 
I went there and within about a week of being there, I knew this is what I was going to do for my career. I was going to work with people who had anxiety disorders. I was going to do exposure and response prevention therapy, and I was going to help people learn how to face their fears and not let all the things running through their head just control their lives, that they were going to take some risks and go out there and try things and learn that they could handle the fears that they had. And it didn't have to be that everything that was running through their head had to be true to them anymore. And so I don't want to age you, but in what era was this? Because oh, mental I, you health has me. not always been. <laughs> <laughs> mental uh, health has not always been something people at their teenage years have said that they want to go into. Now, I have yeah. plenty of babysitters following my footsteps and curious about mental health. But when was this? That was uh, 87, 88, 89. So probably by my my sophomore, junior, senior year of, of high school is when all of that started. And so I went into college then as a psychology major and stuck with it all the way through, never changed majors or anything and, and went all the way through and so went into college in 89 and finally finished everything in, uh, in 2001 with my postdocs and everything. So 12, 12 years of college later, uh, with, with, you know, undergrad and master's and doctorate and postdoc, I, I came out as, as kind of a person who really was interested in OCD and anxiety disorder work and uh, was there for a little while, still at St. Louis, went to a college counseling center because they said they wanted to learn about CBT. They wanted to bring some more evidence-based treatment in and then I got there and it turned out they really didn't seem to want that. And they fought it a lot. And it's like, okay, well, this is not going to last very long. Uh, and then I got a call from a professor of mine from graduate school. And he said, Hey, I consulted this hospital uh, in the Chicago area, Linden Oaks, and they want to start an anxiety program. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, because I was, I was looking to get out of where I was. And I went there and I opened an intensive outpatient program for anxiety disorders there. Two and a half years later, uh, I got a call from Alexi and brothers that they were interested in it. And the circumstances were right at the time to make the move. And so I went there and I spent now 16 years working for the Alexi and brothers uh, group. And then about two and a half years ago, I was able to get this job at NoCD. I'd been with NoCD already through Scientific Advisory Board. I'd met Stephen Smith, our CEO, years ago at the International OCD Foundation Conference. We, we got along very well and, and have just stayed in touch. And so when the opportunity came that they were really expanding their teletherapy services, they, they put out that they were looking for a chief political officer. And here I am. And I've been doing that ever wow. since. So when I started yes. it, we were in three states and we had 18 therapists and now we're in four countries and have many, many therapists who work for us. So it's been, mm -hmm. uh, it's been an amazing journey to, to get to where we're mm -hmm. at. <laughs> so you're really the guy to ask questions about the evolution of evidence-based treatment for anxiety, rather than the psychodynamic therapy that really started um, the counseling in the seventies, eighties, well, before that. Talk to us a little bit about the evolution from psychodynamic therapy, maybe even just a brief summary of what that is for the people who, you know, are just friends of mine and, you know, out in, yeah. out in the world, not so sure about that. And then how and why did it evolve into more evidence-based behavioral therapy? Because there's a whole transition that 
occurred. And I'm curious to know your perspective on that transition and how it was for you. Sure. I mean, if you, if you look at some of the greats, you know, Joe Wolpe, Edna Foa, the people who were out in Pennsylvania at, at um, the clinic that they had who were starting to train people that are very well known now, like John Grayson was there, Marty Franklin was there, Alec Pollard, who then became my supervisor, my postdoc supervisor. And you have this just amazing group of people who, who are so well known. Charlie Mansueto was there as well, too. And they were really looking at the notion of what can we do that's different, right? People kept trying to figure out why people were anxious and what were the underlying meanings to the thoughts that people were having. And unfortunately, because of that, people were often being hospitalized for that too. Oh, you're a mother who has intrusive thoughts about what if I were to harm my child? Oh, well, your baby's in danger. We need to, we need to take that child away from you. We need to hospitalize you because, you know, there was this thought action fusion notion, thoughts make things happen. And so you've, you've got to really figure out where that thought came from and, and cure that underlying wound that's there or, or whatever might be the source of that. And you look at Joe Wilpey's work where he he first was doing systematic desensitization and tried the notion of reciprocal inhibition. You know, you can't be anxious and calm at the same time. And so you start with relaxation exercises and you get somebody really relaxed, then you introduce thoughts that are anxiety provoking to them while they're doing the relaxation and the body can't do both at the same time. So you're you're working toward relaxation winning, which is great. And it worked and it was helpful to people. It was a step up. And then you look at Edna Foa's work about ERP, about what if we really put people into situations that are difficult and uncomfortable and we teach them that they can handle it, that maybe it's all the safety behaviors that we do that, that are the things that are keeping people stuck. You know, what if we got people to stop avoiding things and stop getting reassurance and not distract anymore and, and don't use substances and stop doing compulsions and, and allow for the discomfort to be there and learn that we can handle that. And I've, I've looked at a few things and I think there, there was a notion also, which, which still kind of pervades today, which I try to fight against, which is we're all very fragile, right? And we can't handle a lot of things. And, and I really try to build people up and let people know, listen, you're a lot tougher than you give yourself credit for, right? Look at all the things that you do every day, right? That could be dangerous. You walk up and down stairs, you could trip and fall and break your neck, right? You, you drive a car, you could get into an accident, you do. And, and people don't recognize, I do tons of stuff every day that's potentially dangerous, right? But I've picked this one or two things that are like, oh, those I can't do though. You know, I, I can't do those two potentially dangerous things. I'll do all the other potentially dangerous things, but I can't do those two. And so, I look at it now, the evolution of this as how can we get people just to recognize that you're already doing the difficult stuff, right? And how can you apply that to the things you're just not applying it to so that you'll live the life that you want to live that isn't being ruled by all the anxiety. Now, there were changes in that evolution as well, too. I remember going on my postdoc and and in year one of my postdoc, we were teaching everybody diaphragmatic breathing and muscle relaxation exercises. And we were pairing that with ERP. And by year two, we'd stopped all of that because enough research had come out that said, 
even those aren't necessary. You, you don't need to do those. Well, that blew the minds of so many therapists, though, being like, oh, my gosh, you're asking me to be in a room with someone who's uncomfortable and have them be uncomfortable? Yes, yes. So ERP, I think, is difficult in some ways because it's not just ERP for the patient that we're working with. It's also for the therapist. You as a therapist now have to willingly be with uncomfortable people and not try to make that discomfort go away, right? So my office when I had a real office was not, you know, dim lights and comfy chairs and aromatherapy and, and, you know, all those kinds of things. It was, oh, you're afraid of that? Awesome. Let's do it. Right. And, and we'd, we'd stand up and we'd run in place for interoceptive exposures to get our heart rates up and we'd spin in chairs to get dizzy. And then we'd go do stuff together. And, 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 you know, we'd look out the window and I hope that car gets in an accident to see if thought action fusion worked and we'd wish for things to happen. And, and, it was like a marathon for people. And the beauty of it was how many people have continuously over the last two decades say, I've been to numerous therapists, all who tried me to calm down, which only made me worse because I kept getting angry at myself that I couldn't calm down the way they were telling me to calm down. But, you know, it is, of course, the pink elephant effect, right? I have my pink elephant right there. And, and of course, the moment I tell you, Audrey, not to think of my pink elephant, you're going to think of the pink elephant. And that's what was happening so many times in other types of therapies for anxiety, where, where people would say, well, if, if you have that intrusive thought, just, just think this thought instead. Well, that becomes a compulsion then for someone with OCD when you tell somebody do that, right? So now I've got to think this thing. And Oh, well, when this happens, just, just do some diaphragmatic breathing. Well, tell someone with social anxiety in the middle of a business meeting to start doing diaphragmatic breathing and muscle relaxation and focus on that. And when they, and then in the middle of the meeting, be like, Hey, Audrey, what do you think? And you're like, well, I'm, I'm doing some diaphragmatic breathing and muscle relaxation right now. I wasn't really paying attention to the meeting. I apologize. Could you repeat the question? And then you feel horrible because now you miss the question and you think, Oh my God, now everyone thinks I'm an idiot because I didn't listen to the question and Oh, I can't do these meetings anymore. And so I'm always on a charge and, you know, as we've been in console groups together. So I've always appreciated that, you know, you appreciate this too, is where our, our group of people is on a charge to really try to empower folks to recognize I can handle difficult things. And, and yes, they may be frightening, but I can learn how to handle them. I never have to like them. I mean, that's not my goal. You, you never have to like an intrusive thought. You just have to get to a point of not giving a crap that you've had one. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. How, how can I just be like, oh yeah, there's that thought. Okay. And then go on and live your day or there's that image or there's, there's that urge. Right. And I think the other kind of sometimes shocking experience for people who do the therapy, then who do exposure and response prevention therapy is we as therapists then really do encourage them to face those fears. You know, I have, I have stood uh, at a train track with someone behind me for three hours, telling them to push me into every train that came by because they were afraid, well, what if I push somebody into a train and they weren't going to school anymore because they had to take a train to get there and they were too afraid to do it. So I was like, well, let's just go see if you do it. Let's, let's go there right now and see if you push me into trains. And, and after just three hours of that, she said, well, I guess I'm going to go back to school. I said, fantastic. That's exactly what I was hoping for. Right. You know, but she'd also been to several other therapists before that, all who tried to convince her that she wasn't dangerous. And she kept saying the two words that to me are the fundamental two words of anxiety. And those two words are what if. 
because all she would say to them is, but what if I do? But what if I, so there's what if, and then there's what if cousin, which is, yeah, but what if, and uh, when, (laughs) when those two things are together, this is why you can't talk somebody out of being anxious. You have to behave someone out of being anxious. If we could talk people out of anxiety, we would just need a pamphlet, right? And we would say, here's all the facts of the things you're afraid of and the statistics about it. And here's why you no longer to be afraid. And they would read it and go, oh, okay, thank you very much. I'm no longer afraid. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. That's not what it is. Mm-hmm. So let me break this down. So exposure yeah. response prevention is ERP. And it's mm-hmm. saying that if you expose someone to their fears, either in a hierarchy or mm-hmm. maybe, maybe, well, not flooding. So from my understanding, no, we're not no. flooding people. No. So, so it's a hierarchy of like walking mm-hmm. them up towards. So if someone's afraid of the subway, they would first buy a ticket. Then right. they would walk down the stairs and watch the train. And then right. after that, they would maybe stand in front of the train. So there's this hierarchy of steps to get the person to do their ultimate fear. But mm-hmm. then that ultimate fear, once they learn the ability to face it and cope with it rather than distract, it does generalize to other fears. So eventually someone with OCD who's afraid of the train, but also maybe afraid of hurting someone if let's say they have a knife in the kitchen with them, that sure. eventually if they're in the kitchen with the knife, they're they're not going to fear that they're going to hurt somebody. So what we're describing is harm OCD, which is the, the phobia or the fear that they're going to harm somebody. And what you're saying is that there's an ability to step them to a place where they can face that and then generalize it to a point where OCD is like whack-a-mole. It could be multiple fears, but if we can do good treatment, it does generalize and it's a very effective treatment. So, so you're saying that, and then you're also saying thought, so thought fusion, like if I think I'm going to jump in front of the train, therefore I will jump in front of the train. And you're challenging people that a thought is just a thought. It has no power or, or control over the behaviors. It's just a distortion that you have that a thought will go into the actual, into the action. Am I, am I close to that? Am I right? Okay. For example, uh, Audrey, join me in this and all viewers join me. If everyone will stare at your ceiling for the next, I know you too. Well, (laughs) you know me too. If everyone will stare at your ceiling for the next 10 seconds and just wish for it to collapse on top of you, It's not collapsing. It's not collapsing, is it? (laughs) No. So our thoughts did not rip the ceiling down on top of us. Now, if I have, there you go. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. What if the next time is the time that it happens, right? Mm -hmm. So that to me uh, and, and how I've always approached therapy is the crux of it. You are plagued by what if questions and confuse the notions of possibility and probability, meaning that once something becomes possible, it is therefore highly probable. And now I live in a world where all these things are going to happen because I thought about them, or I had an image of them, or I had an urge about them or something of that nature. And and I just want people to recognize that you really don't have to pay all that much attention to all the things flying through your head all day long, because the vast majority of them are just ridiculous kinds of nonsensey things. And, you know, how, how many people listening to this have driven over a bridge and at the top of the bridge thought, what if I just turned the wheel of my car right now and threw the car off the bridge? You've probably thought that, Audrey. I mean, it's, it's a normal, natural kind of thing, right? It's, it's, not a, it's not a big deal. But when you have an anxiety disorder, 
ooh, did that mean something? But it is a big deal when people stop avoiding, start avoiding yes. bridges and then they can't do their travel routes to vacation right. or they can't get in the car because there's a yep. bridge on the way or so then it becomes a problem because obviously Correct. you're not living a life that you want to live because you're avoiding all of your fears. And the more you let fear drive you, the more fear finds other ways to get you out of your life to the point where you're really living in this tight little box. And if it's, if it's intrusive enough or problematic enough in your life, you were going, you know, that's when we're seeking counseling and things like that. So there's a spectrum, I assume, you know, everyone has intrusive thoughts, but some are so intrusive that it causes problems at work, family, finances. And there's other people have some intrusive thoughts, but because they don't get latched onto them, they continue to live their life with just mild levels of intrusive thoughts. Because my, my experience is that when I start talking about this with friends, everyone can relate to some sort of intrusive thought. And some have sought sure. therapy or psycho, you know, pharmacology, but other people have said, oh, I kind of have that, but it doesn't really impact me. So there's a spectrum. So I just want to say that this is probably a human experience. Yes. That just some, so why do some then have such a difficult time versus those who just kind of let it pass the way that it should? That's, that's the million dollar question and what everyone is trying to figure out. Um, there, there could be several reasons. I mean, there, there's probably something we'll discover someday genetically, but we are so far off from figuring all of that out right now too. So I know there's a lot of research being done on it, but we won't see the benefits of that. In fact, we were just discussing this, a group of us at the OCD foundation conference. And, and I think it'll be decades before we really kind of get to the point of figuring out of that exact piece. So then we look at learning and conditioning. You know, sometimes you just hit a sweet spot, unfortunately, where something happens and it's paired with something else internally. And we, we've just linked those two things. If, if I close my car door today and I get a phone call as I'm doing it and it's my dad and he says, you know, mom fell down the stairs, I might then tomorrow close my car door and just have this uneasy feeling and might open it again and then close it again. And now I don't have that uneasy feeling. And, and what did I teach myself? If I close the car door, right, nothing bad happens and I don't feel uncomfortable anymore. So just slight conditioning experiences like that can play a major role then in the development of, of some of these. You can also hear of a worst case scenario and then think, oh, I don't think I'd ever be able to handle that. So I better make sure that something like that never actually occurs to me. And we build up then of just this, this internal belief that says you can't handle something, right? So that's mm -hmm. why I always say you can handle things to people because so many people believe they can't actually handle it. Mm -hmm. I love one of the DBT, um, DBT agreements when you're in a DBT consultation, which is another form of behavioral therapy that I borrow from. And it's, you we don't treat people as fragile. And that, right. that assumption that I was taught early in my career has been invaluable in my personal and professional life, because now that I've shifted into ERP for anxiety and perfectionism, I borrow that, which is really powerful and also with my team of new clinicians or seasoned clinicians, I start certain meetings with, I respect you and appreciate you so much. I'm not going to treat you fragile because you're not, you are stronger than you think you are. And this is feedback for you. And then I kind of go into it, but priming people that they're not fragile automatically sets them up with more resilient thoughts. And then they can go into difficult situations and feel a little bit more resilient against whatever that adversity is because a lot of people avoid 
emotions that are difficult or uncomfortable, whether it's OCD or not. And ERP is being used for various anxiety disorders. Is that right? Yeah, even I, I think sometimes the hardest one to get people to buy into is the trauma notion about, wait, you would purposely expose people to trauma experiences. Well, yes, because that's also the best example of the pink elephant. The, the moment you have an, a flashback of, of something that's happened and you tell yourself not to think about it anymore, you've just guaranteed putting yourself back into that situation again. So why, like when I worked with veterans at the hospital and we had a VR a, a whole scenario where we would put people back into battle scenarios. Like, aren't you, aren't you just re-traumatizing people? No. You know, what's re-traumatizing people telling someone not to think of something that's re-traumatizing someone because you're just guaranteeing then that they're going to think about it. What isn't re-traumatizing teaching somebody how to handle a memory and learn that they can handle it. I love one of Edna Foa's quotes is uh, tra- PTSD is the fear of a memory right? And we have a memory of something that triggers that emotion that's associated with it. And we feel like we're back in that situation all over again. So what do you want to do? You want to take a look at all the triggers of that memory. You want to expose people to those triggers so that you get new learning that occurs. And that new learning that happens allows for people to not automatically go back to, to the flashback experience and, and to have that fight, flight, or freeze response all over again. Now they that's can- really fascinating. Yeah. Now they can hear a loud noise and not hit the ground anymore because they don't think they're being shot. So a a perfect example would be a veteran who has PTSD, who has been exposed through the ERP protocol to hear different various popping noises to the point where then it's 4th of July and they hear a pop noise and they say, oh, that's familiar to me. I have now been familiar and processed with that. Therefore, I don't have that physiological reaction because I've desensitized myself through the popping noises and it might go from the you know pop of a balloon to the pop yep. of a bb gun to the pop yep. of an actual gun or watching videos so there's yep. that that there's that transitioning to the highest level of distress but obviously as they increase their exposure their distress naturally is decreasing as well so it used to feel like a 10 yep. by the time they get to it, it doesn't feel like a 10 anymore it's probably you know on the lower spectrum of distress. So that's a really good example of how a veteran can have PTSD, but then become familiar with that and in a different way, remembering what that noise is and having kind of a a plan for it, which is really exposing people to their fears and teaching them that they're not fragile and that they can overcome what they think they can't overcome. I mean, that's really what I'm hearing is the foundation. That's a big component of it. Absolutely. And one of my favorite phrases, Audrey, is only an Irishman can tell you to go to hell and make you look forward to the journey. And, and that's how I've looked at <laughs> kind of at ERP, uh, the, the notion of, I'm going to ask you to do something that's very difficult and I'm going to get you really motivated and excited to do it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. I see that's people- That's hard to do. Oh, it is. It is. It's, and it's the hardest thing to train for new therapists as well too. It's this, how do you cheerlead somebody into doing something that's uncomfortable and difficult, but- but the joy you see on people's faces when they are doing the uncomfortable things and then they come back into session like, guess what I did this week? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> go. Mm-hmm. Just, it's so fun. It's just so, so fun. Uh, you know, I, I will always reflect back on the oldest patient I had who was in his late 80s, who had OCD for 70 years and who finally at age that he was decided 
I don't have that much longer to live probably. And I want at least a couple of years of enjoyment out of my life. And after a month and a half of ERP, he was no longer doing compulsions and he was able to get the things in his life done that he wanted to before he died. And it was amazing. So uh, it works, it works well, it works fast, uh, but it, it is not comfortable. And sometimes people go into therapy and, and we've seen ideas of what therapy is on television, maybe in shows or read about it. And, you know, it's this soothing kind of comfortable thing. And again, it, it doesn't have to be that. And, and I, I'm not saying that that's bad therapy. There's, there's a time and a place for all different types of therapies. Absolutely. But for an anxiety disorder, that's not the time or place for that type of therapy for an anxiety disorder. The time and place for the therapy is to learn that you can handle the thing you're afraid of and not let that anxiety rule your life anymore. Wow. Okay. So I'm thinking about a client right now and he's telling himself that this distress and anxiety he has will go away when he hits the next bonus structure and can leave his Ah, company. And so he's really holding on to this. And I ask challenging questions. Well, what if the bonus doesn't come through? What if the bonus gets delayed? You know, what's your quality of life as that's happening? And the reaction is, well, then I'll have to stay or I'll have to, you know, like have to do these things that they don't really want to do. And I said, how about our goal is the, and whatever happens to me, I will be resilient. So this Mm -hmm. idea of trying to change the mindset instead of a singular thought, which is the solution to, and whatever happens to me, I will be okay, which is that more resilient buoyancy sort of mindset. But it seems as if the anxiety is only focus on one solution because that's the only thing that's going to get them out of their anxiety. So in a situation where someone's really anxious and they believe one solution is going to kind of get them to the end result, how do you expose them to something that gets them out of the singular thought? Like it's a little, it's a little less obvious in my mind. So I'm just kind of curious where your mind goes when I ask that. Well, as, as you know about me, I can be a little sarcastic and humory in, in therapy. So I would, uh, if somebody told me that, I figured out the one thing that I need for everything to be okay. I'd say, great. Well, it's been nice meeting you. I'm going to cut the Zoom now. Uh, have a great life. And, and then like, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, 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 did, what did you need? You, you, you've told me you've already figured out everything that you need in order for everything to be okay. I don't understand why you're in a therapy session, if that's the case. And I make them fight to stay in the session. And it almost exposes to themselves all the reasons why they need therapy without me having to tell it to them, right? So it's interesting, at the beginning of this, you told me that you had a solution that you need in order for everything to be okay. But now you're fighting to do a therapy session, which proves to me that you think things aren't actually okay. We've got an interesting dichotomy going on here. What is really happening, right? And I'll use that then as my opening into what else is going on? I, uh, you may you may have in your head said that this thing, as long as this happens, all is well. But I don't even think you believe that, or else you wouldn't be here. So tell me what else is happening, and that's my intro. So right there, intro. you just increased their willingness and motivation. I mean, what you said yeah. earlier, which is increased motivation and willingness to then go do the hard things that make them uncomfortable. So yeah. by you 
you know, kind of flipping, flipping the script a little bit, making them do the work, that's the motivation and the, the drive for them to continue the counseling. So it reminds me of the classic, don't work harder than your client attitude. So in that example, you're kind of saying, okay, then you don't need me. Yeah. And then they say, oh, I do need you because, and then they start doing the work. I like, I like that because oftentimes with anxiety, a counselor can be doing way more work than the client because the counselor is, is feeling anxious or too responsible for the person's outcomes, which then goes into the client. You're treating the client as fragile and they're not. Yes. And anxiety, I'm going to talk about anxiety almost as a personality here. So, you know, forgive that piece of it, but anxiety is very smart. And once anxiety has found a therapist who is working harder than the the person who has the anxiety, anxiety loves that therapist. Because now I can say I'm in therapy for this, but I don't, I'm not really doing anything, but at least I'm, at least I can say that I'm working on it and I'm in therapy. And then and and here's let, let me give you a quick story if it's okay. Here's the day that I realized this. I'm I'm at the hospital, and throughout the day, four different people come up to me. It was I don't know what the stars were aligned or something, whatever it was, but four different people come up to me that day and say, you know, I'm probably the hardest case that you've ever experienced in your career. And I said, oh, oh, you know, the first one I was like, okay. The second one said, oh, interesting. The third one, I'm like, what the heck? Going? And the, the fourth, I was like, the, all right, people are punking me now. I mean, where's, where's the cameras? What's going on? So instead of sending them to the last group of the day where we had kind of our checkout, I pulled the four of them into a room and I just said blatantly, every one of you today has told me that you're the hardest case that I've ever worked with in my career. I'm going to watch all of you fight with each other to see who actually wins that honor. Go. And it was interesting as they all made attempts to try to prove that they were the worst case of anxiety that I'd ever seen. And the same themes kept coming up in them. You know, there was an avoidance piece to that. They were afraid to really be open because what if this didn't actually work? So if they could convince themselves that they were too difficult for me to help, then it was a buffer for them. If it didn't actually work, then they can at least say, well, at least I tried and I met with this expert and he couldn't even help me. But it was also shooting themselves in the foot because then they weren't actually doing anything. And so this this was already building up to a failure in therapy for them because they didn't believe they could even be helped because they thought that they were too difficult for me to even work with as well too. Mm-hmm. And so, well, that's so, where the thought, that's where the thought action fusion worked, where they were telling yeah. themselves they weren't possible to support and coach. And then therefore the actions did fulfill that. So yeah. there's that thought fusion kind of example that you were talking about earlier. And so where do you intercept the thought fusion? Where do you intercept that and how? Well, I, I ask a very simple question. Is this, is this thought helping you or is it getting in the way? And if it's helping you, great, let's keep it. But if it's getting in the way, why are we holding on to it? What, do you, what are you getting out of it? So you don't even attack the exposures until you've increased the motivation and willingness to I, do I the need, exposures. I need motivation, right? Because, so one of the things that Alec Pollard, my supervisor, is very well known for are treatment interfering behaviors. And one of the slides that he has, I love, he says, there's two things about evidence-based therapies to really know. Number one, use them when they should be used. And number two, stop using them when they're not being used the right way, right? So if I get somebody to do an ERP 
and they don't do it and they come back and there's all these treatment interfering behaviors. And I keep saying, but I know ERP is the treatment of choice for anxiety disorder. So we got to keep trying. And every week they keep coming back and they haven't done any, then I'm the one goofing up as the therapist. So first I need to stop doing ERP in that moment, even though it's the best therapy for this, because it is the best therapy for people who are motivated to do ERP, but it's not the best therapy for people who have treatment interfering behaviors. And first, I got to get rid of the treatment interfering behaviors in order to get people then to do ERP. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I, I lived in Mississippi for a while. So I borrow a Southern phrase, which is I'm fixing to get ready to do therapy. And <laughs> there are people out there who are fixing to get ready to do therapy. They're not ready to do therapy, but they're fixing to get ready to do therapy. Mm, and those yeah. people, we got to move them to get ready to do therapy. Right. Like that, what they call like that pre-contemplation where they're just exactly. sitting there kind of thinking about changing. And when you're doing the, when you're doing the assessment, right, you're always looking at the person and, and kind of assessing the willingness and the motivation. And then prioritizing that before the actual exposures. So to kind of pull this back a little bit to the everyday person who's driving in their car, listening to this episode, the first thing to do is look at your own motivation and your own willingness to see if it's high enough or just not even enough, but just where is your motivation and your willingness to maybe tackle this thing that you've been struggling with and starting with therapy is a great place to say, I'm thinking about change, but I'm not quite sure I want it yet. Like that's right. a great opener for therapy. So go to therapy and yeah. say, I know I'm drinking too much and I'm not quite sure I'm ready to change yeah. yet. I have a feeling an intuition that this isn't right for me anymore. And I just want to start to figure out where my motivation, where my willingness is going to come from and explore that with you. So that the therapist right off the bat knows, okay, we're not jumping into thought challenges or exposures, anything like that. We're really just sitting in this like contemplation willingness area. And also sometimes being a little edgy or provocative and kind of pushing them to get more results because you can pander, right? Yeah. So you also don't want to go into therapy and be pandered. So there's that balance. But as a, as a person listening, you know, typically starting with a CBT therapist is going to be one who really starts to push you against the edge a little bit and challenge you enough yeah. to get ready to go versus like a, I'm put air quotes up right now, like the garden <laughs> variety therapist, right. Yeah. Who does it yeah. all like that quote air quote. Cause I really strongly believe that a good therapist and client match is when it's been clearly discussed what the problem is, what the treatment plan might be and how you guys are going to get there rather than sitting on a couch and, you know, venting air quotes again. So, in, you know, in our world, in my world, we very much expect and want change and growth yep. for people. So to yep. come to Simply Be or to go to No CD, you have to expect someone to be discussing with you changes rather than the sit and chat about everything. So just know the therapist right. that you're going to. Right. And again, I, I have no issue with a, a therapist who does that. I just... Mm -hmm. Neither. That's great, you know, and, and my goal will be then to move you off of my caseload onto their caseload, because then I'm going to put another person in that spot who's ready to make that change and do that work. And then hopefully they don't need me in the future. And then I'll put another person in that slot as they move on to something else. I, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't mind when someone says I'm good, I'm going to stop. Great, great. You're, you're going to apply all these things to your life now. And, 
Hey, I'm always here. If you ever need a booster session, come on back, whatever. But, but my goal is you become your own therapist and you're going to apply these things and you're going to do this stuff and it's going to be awesome. And that's, that's what I want for people. Throughout my 10 years as a therapist, I've learned a thing or two about growth. I've had the honor of supporting clients and becoming more resilient people, overcoming obstacles and achieving their goals. What I've learned through this process is that there are five essential steps in every growth journey. With the goal of making personal growth accessible to all, I use these steps to create a planner series so that anyone can work on their growth anytime and anywhere. Each step includes pages of insight and skills from my personal and professional experiences and ends with 30 days of space for you to practice what you've learned. Personal growth isn't a quick process, but this series is designed to make it easy and fun. Learn more at www.simplybecounseling.net slash planners. And be sure to check out the subscription option, which gets you a planner delivered to your door every month for the next five months. Since you're a Well Not Perfect listener, you can get 10% off on any order using code WELLNOTPERFECT. There's no better day than today to tap into your own growth and resiliency. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you if someone's listening and thinking, I know I have anxiety. What if it's OCD? Someone who's asking themselves that, how do you help people delineate what is anxiety and what is OCD? Sure. Well, if you look at all the different forms, right? So phobia is going to be the fear of one thing. You know, I have an elevator phobia, so I just don't ride elevators. I do all these things. Everything else in my life, yeah, pretty good. Or versus OCD is probably going to have a theme of things, right? And multiple different kinds of compulsions being done in order to neutralize the intrusive thought or image or urge that you have. So if, if you're purposely doing a behavior that is either visible or mental, as a way to actually neutralize something, because you think if you don't neutralize that thought, image, or urge, something bad is going to happen, you're looking at OCD. But if you're walking up to an elevator, like I hate elevators, the thing but to die, and you take the stairs, there's no neutralization of a thought, image, or urge going on there. They're just like, I'm just trying to avoid death right now. So I'm going to take the steps. That's a straight on phobia. If you're looking at somebody who's having a lot of physiological reactions to anxiety, you're probably looking at more panic, right? So we have a type of ERP that you can do for that. It's called interoceptive exposures, where we would have you do things like running in place, hyperventilate, breathe through straws, spinning in chairs to teach you. You can handle all the bodily sensations. You know, we all have noisy bodies, and sometimes those noisy bodies come through and across as some symptoms that we find to be uncomfortable. If you have agoraphobia, you're going to shut yourself down. You're going to see your life is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, can that happen in OCD? Sure, it can. But it could be more out of an embarrassment. I don't want people to see me doing all of these compulsions, right? Or it could be out of, if I get near someone, I'll contaminate them and then they'll die and it'll be my fault. It isn't about what you would see in agoraphobia. I I have to find the safe place in order to stay there in order to be okay. Because if I leave the safe place, then I might die because I might have a panic attack or go out of control or something of that nature. If you're looking at social anxiety, again, you have that very specific fear of being judged or evaluated in those situations. You're not neutralizing some kind of intrusive thoughts or images or urges. You're you're really actually believing them. Like I am an idiot. People do look at me all the time. Those people at the cafeteria table four away, they're actually laughing at me. They're not telling jokes with each other. They're, they're actually laughing at me and I need to get out of this situation. 
Now you could do great ERP there too. you know, go up to people and introduce yourself and say, my name's Joe, when it's actually not <laughs> and say, oh, wait, that's not my name. <laughs> and, you know, just, you know, fun <laughs> things like that. I, I had a buddy who he had someone recently, they walked into a supermarket, went up to the deli counter and said to the, the person at the deli counter, what's the difference between beef and chicken? You know, so that was great. I mean, what an awesome <laughs> ERP exercise that was, right? So those types of things, you know, you could do. So really the difference in OCD from everything we've talked about is that notion that there is some kind of intrusive, sometimes even experience maybe is inappropriate or, or just a bad kind of idea. We, we hear that word bad thought or image or urge all the time. I try to, of course, get people to recognize there's no such thing as a bad thought or image or urge. There are just thoughts, images, and urges. And, but, but the, the secondary component of it is the notion that if I don't do something about it, something bad will happen and it would be my fault if I don't neutralize it. So uh, one of my, one of the more interesting examples and, and maybe too, in terms of a misdiagnosis, a uh, young woman that I worked with who had been misdiagnosed as ADHD because she wasn't paying attention in class, but she actually had OCD and she thought that every time she saw a number, if she didn't count up to it, a bomb would go off in the school. And she was in the back of the class and the teacher was in the front and there was a clock over the top of the teacher's head. So every time she looked up at the teacher, she saw the clock. And if she saw the clock, she had to count up to 12 because if she didn't, a bomb would go off. So now she doesn't look up at all. And the teacher's like, oh, this girl doesn't pay attention. She must have ADHD, refer her for medications and stimulants. And well, her, her OCD gets worse now that she's on stimulants. And now she can't even walk down the hall because if she sees a number on one of the hall doors in the hall, and it's like room 104. Now she stops and she stares at the room number 104. And she stares at it until she counts up to 104 because she doesn't want a bomb to go off. Oh, this poor girl, look at her. She's not paying any more attention to school. And now look at this. Oh, there must be something really horribly going on. We need, you know, it just, it just built to build. And it was, it was all OCD, you know, it was just, and in her mind, she was doing a wonderful service to everyone. I'm stopping bombs from going off in the school by counting. Why don't all of you appreciate the fact that that's what I'm doing? I'm saving your lives. So OCD is also sneaky because it says, Hey, hey, I can help you and the rest of the world. If you just do what I tell you, everything will be fine. There won't be any problem. Now, this is where OCD can be kind of a jerk too, because OCD will look at something like PTSD and say, oh, you've had a trauma in your life. I can prevent that from ever happening again. Just do these compulsions and it'll never occur again. I'm going to keep feeding you the thoughts about the trauma. And as long as you do the compulsions to neutralize it, it'll never happen again. So OCD says, mm-hmm. I'm your buddy, I'm your friend, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you, I'm going to, you, you go along with me, it's going to be a great life, we're both going to do fine. But that's not the case. So a question here. So, and I sort of feel like I'm asking you questions now, like we're at a cocktail party. I'm like, how can go I ahead. ask please, please, another please, question please. that's, yeah. you know, fascinating <laughs> to me. So I hear you saying that she was counting to 104 because yep. she didn't want the bomb to go off and she was yep. doing a service. What about the person who shops compulsively because they need to complete the series of something, whether that be a series of shoes, a series of purses, a series of video games, whatever it may be. And they don't have the awareness maybe of why they're doing it, right? But it's an itch that they're scratching. Mm -hmm. What What is going on when someone's unconsciously going through the compulsive shopping and not sure why, but they just, they know it's wrong because there's financial consequences. Like what, what do we do with the lack of awareness at that point? Well, let's take a look at wordage here first. 
I've always challenged the notion of compulsive gambling or compulsive shopping. I'd prefer people say impulsive gambling or impulsive shopping because I'm very strict on my use of the word compulsion. A compulsion is done to neutralize an obsession. Now, what if the obsession is to complete the series? Maybe there is an obsession, but there isn't always an obsession, right? Because you can also Got be it. looking at hoarding as well, too. You know, some people with hoarding might have these notions of, I have to have everything. I have to have all of them in order to, to be okay. And, and hoarding, as much as there is acquiring that occurs in hoarding, hoarding is actually a, a condition of discarding and not always of acquiring. Because Okay, back up. Yeah, I, I'm blowing your mind. I know, I know. <laughs> okay, what? <laughs> so if you look at the definition of hoarding, it is, it's actually written as a problem about discarding things. And you may or may no longer be acquiring at any point, right? So you may be at a point that you don't acquire anything else, but you have a hoarding problem because you're not discarding anything. So at, throughout hoarding, you have to acquire stuff. But there could come a point where you stop acquiring and you still have hoarding because hoarding is a problem of discarding, not necessarily of acquiring. You have to acquire to be hoarding, but what do you also have to do? Hold on to everything as well, too. So it's either, it could be a single-edged sword or a double-edged sword. Correct. Correct. Got it. Yes. Yes. So yeah, isn't that cool to think of it that way? I mean, it's just, it's really kind of- It makes kind a of ton of sense. Yeah. Because I've seen both. I mean, I've seen sure. someone like continue to acquire and then also mm -hmm. not discard. And then I've also seen people not acquire, but then not discard. So yeah. I, I do see it now. That makes a ton of sense. I heard just not that this makes anything because it's not based on research. I heard that hoarding is typically associated to trauma. Yeah, it can be, not, but I mean, it yeah. doesn't have to be, right? doesn't okay. have to be. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it also depends on your look at trauma. Are you looking at trauma from the PTSD definition of trauma? Or are you looking at trauma as maybe more the little T kinds of things as well? Yeah, too, like the right? attachment trauma, like yeah. this idea of like, I like I feel I feel connected to something if I keep it, and that makes me feel safe, like from an attachment standpoint, rather than sure. like, a, you know, a traumatic event. So Okay. That's a side note. Continue. Tell me more <laughs> yeah. about like, what's, what's the, what's the acquiring about and what's sure. the lack of discarding about? So uh, obviously you have to acquire things in hoarding, but the biggest issue of course, is you choose not to get rid of things. Now you may have, I'm going to go back to that impulsive shopping experience, right? And, and you may have this feeling like I, I, those things really are cool. And maybe I get one and oh, the joy that it brings me when I get one. Wow, this feels so cool. Now I want more, right? I have to have all of them and, and complete them. But after a while, especially in people who, who hoard, there may be an immediate gratification, but then it fades quickly. And it just, everything becomes part of the hoarded things. And you may not see it again for 15 years, but as long as you know it's there, it still feels kind of good. There's, there's almost this tactile notion in hoarding, like looking at a picture of it is just not good enough. I actually have to have it. I have to possess it. Right. And, and if I don't, there's this, this void or this urge in me to want to go get it. Right. Or there's this fear that if I lose it, I'll forget the memory of it. Right. Not only it's, it's like the, the item equals the memory. I've, I've had people in their 70s who still have the clothes that their child wore on their first day of first grade because 
it's the memory associated with that. And, and it's been through three floods and it's just moldy and shredded and disgusting, right? And smells bad, but they see beyond all of that and they see it for what it was on the day that their child wore it, right? And so, and, and I use the word disgusting there purpose. They want to go back to that. Uh, but that's where we as therapists really have to be careful, right? We have to have a poker face to everything, especially in hoarding, because people with hoarding are going to be watching you and watch how you react to things. So if you use a disgust face, you know, one of those kinds of reactions, they're not inviting you back, right? They, they want someone who is going to respect their, their items, who will respect the effort and time they put into gaining all of those things and who will be respectful of how you will move them out to the next place that those things are going to go. Because, I, I mean, there's even, there's even people who, who kind of personify things in, in anxiety. Look at somebody with, I'm going to go to your, your title here, who's got a kind of a perfectionism, just right OCD. I've literally had people say, when I've told them, tonight your ERP exposure is, I want you to leave one of the saucers out on your counter tonight and not put it in the cabinet. And they've literally said to me, word for word, but the saucer wants to be with the other saucers in the cabinet. It doesn't want to be on the counter. <laughs> so there's there's almost this notion like, but it will be lonely and it will want to be with its it's friends. Like, it's like the stuffed animals. You need them yeah. all lined up so they all yeah. can see out. Yeah. And if you hide one's eyes, then he'll be left out. He wants to yep. be with all the stuffed yes. animals. Yeah. Right. See, yeah. see, you you get it. You understand. And so sometimes this almost personification of of things plays a role in this too. And, and we attach some emotions to it. Like this, this item wouldn't want to be thrown out. It doesn't want to go into the trash. Or one of my, I, I did a few of the hoarding shows on the learning channel for hoarding buried alive. I was the therapist for a couple of them and know a lot of the other therapists who did them too. And one of my favorite ones that I was watching was a woman had a, a cracked Frisbee. I mean, it was, it was really not in good shape. And when, when the therapist suggested that it go into the, the recycling bin for plastics, her reply was, well, but couldn't we donate it to the local school? And then they could cut it up into little pieces and glue it on paper and it would look like a mosaic or a stained glass window. And I'm going to bet most schools do not want a broken Frisbee donated to them. You know, they, they just don't look at things that way. But People with hoarding are amazingly creative in, in their head of just everything has a purpose and a reason to be held on to and, and, and a way that it could be used or something of that nature. And, and so if I can acquire things to complete a set, you know, now I get to say, look, I have an entire set of this. It might take me a year to find all of them because they're all kind of spread about, but, but there's a pride in some of that as well, too, that. I've achieved something, I've collected something. And, and going to those little T trauma experiences, if you were a kid who was raised in the, you know, in the military and every four years you had to move, you might only be able to take with you what fit in the station wagon, you know? And, 
and everything mm -hmm. else got left behind. I mean, I've, I've heard stories of people who say I had to leave my bicycle back at the base. And I saw as we were pulling away, my neighbor riding my bicycle because I couldn't take it with us. We didn't have any room for it. And, and so here's this little child watching another person ride their bicycle as they drive away from it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it makes you kind of understand maybe why you'd want to hold on to things as, as you get older. Yeah. Right? That's what it reminds me so much of the attachment where there's something, it seems to me, just my gut feeling sitting with someone who's been talking about this is there's a, there's a repairing that they're trying to do with what they're, what they're collecting, whether it be powerful, you know, empower that they can afford something they feel as if it's really valuable and that makes them feel really prideful. Like you had mentioned you know, you're, you're kind of belonging to a community because there's a lot of like chat rooms that support these types of purchases and creating series. So it really fulfills a couple of things that I typically look at when I'm working with a client, you know, and I say, if you come to therapy feeling disempowered, devalued, disconnected, or like you don't belong, you know, th those are the four things we want to look at. And by the end yeah. of therapy, we want to see if you feel those four things. And in hoarding, it reminds me a lot of feeling disempowered as a child, now feeling empowered as an adult, not feeling like they had valuable items as a child because of finances or because of resources. And now they can afford the valuable things, even if it's on credit in their mind, it feels affordable. So I find that it is attached to some core beliefs and then using CBT to bring those core beliefs to surface and ask them, are these beliefs serving you? And are they, are they something that you want to work on and challenge? So I, for, for this particular one, I do find that it is some underlying things happening mm -hmm. and that it's a very kind of what we call regressed. It just feels more childlike in some ways, but then in your thirties, fifties, seventies, and eighties, it's very hard to kind of tap into that and kind of repair or kind of reheal the, the childhood stuff. So just kind of yeah. curious what you thought about that because sure. it seems more emotional to me. You know, here, here's what's interesting as we've done more hoarding work and there's a long way to go in hoarding. And, you know, I'm good friends with Gail Steckity and Randy Frost, who really were like the, the founders of the hoarding uh, research and world that we do. But if, if you kind of look at some of the, the talks they've done and things, hoarding starts in adolescence, but parents often intervene and, and so those tendencies are there very early on for people, but they might not have the monetary means or uh, the ability to gather everything because other people are involved in their lives. So you don't typically see it until later on in life because there've been other people intervening, trying to get in the way of the hoarding, even though those tendencies are there very early on for people. <laughs> and you know, even if you look at the definition of hoarding, there, there may be a few areas in the home that are clean and neat and organized, but that's usually only because there's the intervention of someone else, maybe a spouse or something like that, who says, this room is staying like this. You are, you are not allowed to bring anything else into this room, right? Um, and, and the other piece that I think is interesting, I'm going to go along with what you were saying, is, is the beliefs that people hold. I remember being into getting into a, a slight argument with someone who had hoarding when I was in their home and I'm being bombarded by fruit flies in the house from this thing of peaches that are on their counter. 
And I said, you know, I, I think those are getting kind of to the point that it's time to go. And, and her reply to me was, oh, no, no. Fruit flies is a definition of freshness. So the more fruit flies you have, the more fresh your food is. <laughs> and I was just like, I, I, I'm going to, having worked at a supermarket for part of my life, I'm, I'm going to beg to differ because if we had fruit flies at the, at the supermarket, we would have been shut down by the state. You know, it would have just been a horrible experience. So it was, it's just interesting. The, even the belief systems that people will grab onto and, and hold on to be true and the way that people will rationalize things. I, I was at the OCD foundation conference one year and, and, an elderly woman came up and she knew I did some hoarding work and she was very concerned about going home. And I asked her what the issue was. She said, well, I don't know how I'm going to get my luggage back in my house. I said, well, you did get it out of your house, right? Yeah. But what I did was um, my front door only opens about this much. And she gave a very short, but she was a tiny, frail, uh, elderly woman. She said, so I can get in and out of there, but my luggage is, is wider than me. So I couldn't get it out. So what I did is I went up to the second story and I threw it out the window. And then I packed everything on the, on the front lawn, but now I don't know how to get it back in the house because I'd have to go through the window on the second story. Where there's a will, there's a way. Right? There, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So that's it's, a, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a really, I mean, we didn't get into this, but we can, which is accommodations. So finding yeah. ways to continue the behavior. I, in the past have had a client who had health anxiety. And so they were going to their doctor weekly to mm, get reassurance mm, that they didn't mm, have a disease or illness. Mm. And after being just piled on with medical bills, realizing that that was the true consequence that would motivate change. And so when we worked on the time in which she would contact the doctor. So if she was contacting the doctor, Every 72 hours, we tried to extend it to four days and try to extend it to five days to Good. do, you know, just to Good. kind of yeah. create that distance between engaging in the behavior. And what happened was they began to ask reassurance from family members to check spots on their bodies, to check their heart rate, things like that. And what I had to do is get a whole picture of everyone in their life and how that was getting kind of enabled through reassurance, which is getting what it is reassurance from other people that you are okay, but that doesn't last for very long until they have to go get more reassurance, but where there's a will, there's a way for sure. Yeah. Do you, do you have, do you have, um, let's say someone's living with someone with, uh, anxiety or OCD sure. and they're listening and they might not realize they're doing this, but what is reassurance and how can people listening catch themselves if they're reassuring someone in their life that may be having some of these problems? One of the big pieces that I do is try to educate folks on the five safety behaviors. You know, how do you get people to stop avoiding things they're afraid of? How do you get people to feel they're empowered to do things on their own without having to be told that everything will be fine or okay? So reassurance. How do you do things and fully engage in them without distracting while you're doing them? How do you do them sober and not using substances as a way to get through the experience? And how do you do them without doing compulsions to try to neutralize whatever is going on in your head? And so unfortunately what happens with a lot of spouses is they think they're helping 
when they're actually pushing the problem down the road and making it worse. So I give an example, Audrey. I'll say this. Imagine your niece or nephew were in a detox unit and you went to visit them and they were sweating and had diarrhea and were throwing up and shaking and had the chills and a fever and said, this is the worst they've ever felt in their life, detoxing off of alcohol. And they looked at you and said, Ann Audrey, could you please just go down the street to the liquor store and get me two airplane bottles of vodka, sneak them in here so that I could stop going through withdrawal. I feel like I'm going to die. I just need you to do this for me and then I will be fine. Would you, Audrey, go and get vodka for them? No, absolutely no. not. Okay. So, Audrey, you're fine with somebody being physically uncomfortable now in order to be better later. I would ask, are you also fine if somebody is emotionally uncomfortable now in order to be better later too? Now, I know you and are. Sir, nephew. Right. Yeah. And he's yeah. our nephew. No, I'd probably like reassure them that everything's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and so there we go. Right. And look at that. So we've said in our society, it's absolutely okay to be physically uncomfortable now in order to be better later. You know, we, we cut you open, we take things out and, and you might even feel worse after the surgery than you did before the surgery, but give it a few weeks to heal and you're going to feel better than you did just, you know, and all those things. So we're, we're absolutely accepting of physical discomfort now is great because it could lead to me feeling better later. I want us to be the same about emotional discomfort, right? I want us to recognize that, that we don't have to keep giving reassurance to people. Now, if your niece or nephew call and they're nervous, you're like, you're going to do awesome, you know, once, whatever, you know, I'm not telling you, <laughs> I'm not telling you to change any of that. But if you've got someone who's chronically doing this and is now relying on your relationship, not as a relationship of love and support, but as a relationship of reassurance seeking, that reassurance needs a divorce. That has to end because once somebody has been defined as the provider of reassurance, the anxiety latches onto them like they are the greatest thing in the entire world and will keep seeking out more and more and more and more reassurance from them because you can never get enough. No one with an anxiety disorder has ever been reassured to the point that they've said, great, I'm not anxious anymore. You know, you, you can't give OCD or anxiety enough reassurance. Yeah, so, yeah, it takes, I mean, it takes the responsibility off of the person who's feeling anxious yes, and then yes. gives the responsibility to someone else. And then handing off that responsibility feels really great temporarily yes. because then it's outside of you, Correct. but obviously with re with the right level of reassurance, it should be re-internalized. So if I'm anxious about an interview and my husband's reassuring me, ideally I internalize that, that uh, comfort from him. And then I yeah. walk into the interview with that internalized. That's what Great. we do as parents to children. Wonderful. But what, but what we, you know, what we don't want to do is be texting our husbands during <laughs> the interview, seeking that reassurance and yeah. waiting for that relief to come. And let's say they're busy. And then yeah. what are you going to do? That right. that person's right. no longer reassuring you. Right. It reminds me of spouses who travel by airplane. You know, I've seen time and time again, just personal and professional, the spouse is like, you're going to be fine on the airplane. You're going to be fine on the airplane, right? They get them on the airplane and they use their spouse to get on the flight and to fly and land. And eventually your spouse isn't going to be available. Eventually something's going to happen. You're going to lose service and you're stuck on your own. And then you can add like Xanax to that, right? So you just create this like complete, like everyone else take care of me because I have not learned how to, to do that myself. Yeah. And, and 
that's where for me it's like the self-talk and that's that the self-talk comes into this where mm-hmm. and if and if the plane goes down I will I will do my best I will be okay I will I will do what I can so that self-reliance to me is so important and that's what I really try to get across like not only my children but my clients which is and if it doesn't turn out the way that you expect, what are the thoughts that you are going to say to yourself? I am still lovable. I am still powerful. I am still strong. And I didn't get the promotion and I didn't get the bonus or, and I didn't get the scholarship that I wanted. So really trying to get them so resilient that the buoyancy of their thoughts are really about, I'm going to survive this no matter yeah. what. Yeah. And you're going to handle came, it. That came to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, Personally, that came to me through entrepreneurship, where I just really realized that at the end of the day, if I was going to succeed in entrepreneurship, I had to believe in myself, even in the worst failures or in the worst fears. So that that wasn't something I learned in school per se, but now sure. I carry with me very, very strongly. And we as therapists really have to have a tenacity on that as well, too. I was working with someone. Uh, one compulsion that a lot of people have is to apologize. You know, I'm sorry. I just wanted to ask you a question. I'm sorry. I'm, you know, everything starts off with I'm sorry. So I said to him, starting tomorrow, I will no longer accept your apologies, just so you know. So if you say I'm sorry, I'm going to say I don't accept your apology. So the next day he came in and he was doing well for a while, but then he he, he knocked on my office and he said, uh, Dora, and he said, I, sorry, I just wanted to ask something. I said, well, I don't accept your apology. And he stood there for an hour and a half begging me to accept his apology. And I said, no. I will not do it. We agreed yesterday that I would not accept any more apologies from you. And I have to keep my word and I'm not going to accept the apology from you um, because you were going to ask me a question. So eventually he left, but had I given in, it would have said to him, A, don't trust me because I go back on my word and B, oh, this time your anxiety level raised to such a level that you really did need the apology. And so uh, as long, now, what does that teach you? As long as I get my anxiety up to this level, everyone will apologize to me. And so that's where it's always good. It's always going to then go to an 11, right? Every time uh, in order to keep getting that apology. So we as therapists really have to be, also be comfortable with people being uncomfortable and allow for that discomfort and family members and, and everything as well too. Sometimes the best love you give to someone isn't to comfort them, but to allow them to learn that they can handle being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. The boundary setting is what I'm hearing you say too, that sometimes yeah. we have really soft boundaries and give in for comfort at times of distress, but then we have to have really hard boundaries because through love, we set the boundaries and we see that with children, yeah. you know, where there's a huge behavior outburst at the grocery store. Cause you've said mm-hmm. no candy at checkout, even though we've done candy for the last five years at checkout, <laughs> there's going to be a huge behavior burst at the end. And by conceding, you are teaching them the very things that you just said, which is if you get so high in distress, then you need this, you need the thing that you're craving. And also I'm not able to maintain my boundaries. And in the future, that's going to teach you how to teach me. And it really kind of perseverates on and on. Yeah. The the best parenting I ever saw was a, a friend of mine at her child's birthday party. And they had a series of games set up in this community room they were at. And her daughter was not winning all the games and started throwing a tantrum saying, it's my birthday, I should win all the games. 
And she actually took her daughter outside and they stood at the window and watched all the other kids playing. And she said, when you're ready to play like everyone else, I'll let you go back in and play. But until then, you're going to watch what it's like to have fun and not be competing and having to win, just enjoying the fact that people are playing and enjoying playing. And they were out there for about 15 minutes. And finally, she said, OK, I'm ready to go back in now and I'm just going to play the games. I, I hugged her afterwards. I said, that is some of the best parenting I've ever seen in my life. Congratulations. That was amazing. Yeah. And you are yeah. an awesome mom for what you just did. Well, here's, yeah. here's what she did. She managed her own anxiety. Yeah. She let her rational mind stay present. Yeah. Her emotion mind was probably really loud and maybe embarrassed or yeah. disappointed in their child that they weren't grateful for the good birthday that she was giving them. And she also used her reason to make a great parenting decision. And time and time again, you know, good intentions of love then enables behaviors and then you get a habit from that person. And it's so important as a parent or as a spouse with anyone who's highly dysregulated is what we're now talking about. A person who's dysregulated is not giving in to their distress, but you maintaining that balance because the concept that we use is borrowed regulation. So if you're regulated as a parent or a spouse or a teacher, then that person can borrow your regulation until they get theirs mm-hmm. back. I like that. And so yeah. as a therapist, we're trying to regulate ourselves in the room so that the so that our client can borrow the modeling behaviors that we're providing. But as soon as we physiologically get anxious or nervous, And I think when we get anxious and nervous as the more reasonable person on the side watching is because we start to doubt our own abilities. Mm -hmm. We doubt our abilities as a therapist, as a parent, as a spouse. And so when we doubt ourselves, all of a sudden we lose our confidence and then we go and enable because that person's kind of hijacked the situation. And by co-regulating, it creates this opportunity for everyone to kind of bring it down kind of get to a place where then they can kind of reason because what I, what I am almost hearing you say is that there's almost like this development of OCD potentially where like there might be that nature and the nurture that develops OCD as an adult based on like the family dynamics as well, how they were raised and what college they went to and the environment and everything. Yeah. I mean, we know that there's a genetic component to it, uh, but we know OCD can start as young as like four. We've seen it in, in kids as well, too. So there are definitely some genetic pieces of it, but there are environmental experiences and stressors that happen as well, too. So that diathesis stress model, when the when the genetic component meets the environmental stressor at the right time, you have the, the chance to develop something or not, right? And you may have a high genetic component for OCD, but never have the right stressor to kick it off. You may have an amazingly low genetic component for OCD, but have a massive stressor that, that does kick it off and everything else is in between. You know, Just because you've experienced something doesn't mean you're gonna get it. You know, Not everybody who goes to a war comes back with PTSD, right? So, so we know that people can go through very difficult experiences and not develop a disorder. But we also know there's other people who might experience something that the vast majority of people might say is not a big deal, which to them is a massive deal, right? Because of that mix of environment and genetics that goes on. So we have to look at every single person that comes in their circumstances and figure out how are we going to design a treatment program for that person specifically to not scare them away, but to also nudge them toward the discomfort that they need to face and learn how to handle so that ultimately they'll be fully functioning 
beings in the environment that they want to be in, in a way that they say, yeah, I can handle things. I, I don't like everything, but I can handle it. Mm-hmm. So obviously ERP is very successful when it comes to OCD and anxiety compared to other treatments that we've seen decades and decades ago. So we're making really good progress. Where is it headed now? What's mm-hmm. the research kind of saying? What What are you focused on right now? Because it sounds like you you know what's kind of what's ahead typically for this yeah i mean i i'm so in the ocd world now with no cd but i i am excited to see the adoption of erp into eating disorders and frankly i was trained that way 22 years ago i worked quarter time in the eating disorder clinic and three quarter in the anxiety clinic and we were doing erp with people who had eating disorders back then as well too and so i'm really excited to see uh, there's more talks at conferences now about using ERP for, for eating disorders. You have behavioral activation work for depression. So getting people who are depressed to really move and get motivated and, and, and do something, even if they're not feeling excited about it anymore, because that's what depression does is it removes that, that pleasure that you get from it, but still doing it anyway, and allowing yourself to learn that your prediction about how bad it's going to be almost never comes true. You know, you, you always in depression think it's going to be so awful and horrible and Eeyore everything. And the reality is it, it often turns out better than what you predicted it would be. So I love the behavioral activation work that people are doing and find that very exciting as well too. So I, I'm thrilled that more and more therapists are seeing the value of behavioral work that is happening and, and recognizing that we can't just talk people out of things. And, and frankly, if you look at it from a physiological standpoint too, where in the brain a lot of these disorders are occurring in the midbrain, the midbrain has no language ability. You, you can't talk to the midbrain because it's so, it's so old. You know, it's, it's, it's out in the cortex. You have all your language ability, but that's not where a lot of these disorders are actually occurring. So if you want to target some of these issues and, and, that are happening in people's lives, where they're actually occurring in their brain, you take a behavioral route to really get there because those parts of the brains respond to behavioral interventions instead of cognitive interventions. Mm-hmm. And ERP is being used virtually as well. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. the results of using ERP virtually with people in their home? We just published a study on that through NoCD as well too, actually, and saw amazing results. So if, if in the past you had an issue with your stove and it was winter, you had to pack up the kids and that takes an hour to get their coats on and their boots and everything, and then drive an hour in the snow to come to my office. And then we would talk about your stove and, and uh, then you drove home and, and hopefully you did the homework and everything. But now in the comfort of your own home and, and just even on your phone, I could say, hey, let's go to your stove, turn your stove on, turn it off. And now we're going to go in the other room. We're not going to check it again. And we're even going to let the kids play in the room where the stove is. And we're not even going to go see how they're doing, right? You're just going to allow for that to be there and see what happens. We're going to be in that experience. So that A, that part is great. B, the fact that people in rural areas who don't have access to specialists now have access to specialists because we can do that through a virtual experience is also awesome too. I knew people who used to drive three hours for an hour appointment with me and then they would drive back home. So it was a seven hour day total for a one hour appointment Uh, or they'd stay overnight and spend the money on a hotel or something like that too. So it's just 
it's amazing now through technology, the, the people that we can reach. And there's even the folks who maybe were embarrassed to go to a therapist office. They didn't want their car in the parking lot or who was in the waiting room and to be seen. And so there's some anonymity that's also helpful in, in the virtual experience as well too. And people, I think, feel a little bit more willing to talk to someone because it's more private in that kind of experience as well. And we're going to link that in the show notes. If someone really likes what they're hearing and wants to learn a little bit more about how you can help them, what's a good place to go and how do they access NoCD? You can go to nocd.com or treatmyocd.com. We also have a campaign we're doing now called NoCD, K-N-O-W, uh, OCD. And so that's really exciting as well, too. And we've even partnered with Howie Mandel on that No OCD campaign. Uh, that we're doing. And he's talking about how OCD is not a joke. And so we're very excited to have a comedian who take, who looks at this from a serious point of view and says, you know, he's very open about his OCD and his children's and everything. So he's working with us in that no OCD campaign. And if there's professionals, I know, I don't know about lay people, but the International OCD Foundation, can you talk a little bit about the access to that for professionals and maybe people who are just curious? Yeah. So the IOCDF, it's IOCDF.org is a great resource for people. Uh, there's tons of articles and information about OCD. There's uh, a therapy finder on there as well too. No CD, of course, is on that therapy finder. Very exciting. And if, if you're just interested in some great research, right? Some articles. There's a great newsletter that comes out quarterly as well too through the OCD Foundation. And their conference is one of the most amazing conferences to go to because their conference is about a quarter of people who treat OCD and three quarters of people who have it or their family members. So it's really a conference for consumers to be able to meet up with each other, share stories, their support groups that happen, there's special interest groups. And there is, which, which I just kind of love, the ability for us as therapists to interact with, with people who have OCD as well too. And they get to come up to us and just ask questions and, and talk to us or come to talks and everything. So it's a very, very exciting time. It's one of my favorite conferences to go to every year. And it's a great organization. So I know for NoCD, we've been happy to help them out like with sponsoring the walks that, that they do every year for education and, and the conference and everything as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate your time and I absolutely want to have you back because I already have niche questions. Oh, like sure. OCD with Anytime. Eating yeah. disorders, OCD with athletes. I have all of these really niche kind of populations that we see every day. Let's do it. Simply be it. I want to pick your brain. Well, thank you for being on another episode of Well, Not Perfect. Thank you for listening to season three. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting the subscribe button and consider leaving me a review. And for more information, all things podcast, you can connect with us on Instagram at Well, Not Perfect. See you next week.